Is there anything you would have done differently? We've reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. And welcome to Ink Stain or Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. And my friend, one thing that is definitely going right is that we are going to take the week off this week for Thanksgiving and let the intrepid Alexis Nestor put together a greatest hits of Ink Stain Wretches so far. So we're going to get some time with the people we love. Yay. Wonderful. Chris, what are you doing? Well, I'm going. I'm going to friends and going to. I I have my sons every other year for Thanksgiving, so this is an this is an off year. So I have to go impose. I have to go impose myself on someone for Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> but it's great because you get to experience other people's family. I I think one of the things that Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. I would say it's Thanksgiving and Easter are closely tied for me, but I love Thanksgiving because it's quintessentially American. It's quintessentially about, you know, conservatism, as I understand it, is rooted in gratitude. And you cannot be happy. Oh, God, I didn't realize I was doing a podcast with Arthur Brooks. But it's true. It's very true. Gratitude gratitude for the, the, the wonders of this world and the wonders of this creation and all of our bounty and all of our freedom help us think about things in the right way. Uh, so I really love Thanksgiving and I love the food and I love to go to other people's Thanksgivings to see what they do. What are you going to do? All right. Well, I pretty much like the food. So we're actually doing something for, this is the second year in a row. We've done something different because uh, last year I went to my sister's in-laws uh, who are local. We didn't travel because of COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but normally I love this holiday because we have like a huge family gathering in Minnesota and, uh, something I have not disclosed on this podcast is that my dad's side of the family, not my dad, but others are in the liquor distribution business. And so the, we always have, there's always like fun, you know, pumpkin booze or this new thing that they're distributing that new thing, lots of fun drinks, super fun. Um, but I am 30 three weeks pregnant and will be 34 weeks pregnant next week. And so I decided that everyone's going to come to me, but everyone, I mean, my parents. So, uh, so we're hosting and we'll You're have hosting? my parents. We are hosting. That However, so work. no, no, no. So uh, I literally, I will set the table, but uh, my parents are coming. My sister is also local. So uh, my okay. sister and my brother-in-law are coming, but my mom, yeah, my mom is going to go to my sister's and like cook a bunch of stuff and bring it over. Brilliant. So I just have to pick up the pies. And so uh, it'll be super fun. Uh, I you'll can't be, wait. You'll be, you're the, you're going to be the queen bee. And I like it. I that, can't that, wait. Everyone is, coming to me. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, uh, I also, one of the things that we are of course, very thankful for uh, are all of you listeners uh, who have uh, joined this startup, this merry band to be our fellow wretches. So we are grateful to you. And our present to you is this uh, great collection of stuff that we had fun Chris, doing. Chris, you just like undermined our gratitude. We were like, you know, we're so grateful here. We're going to give you more of us. No. Uh, I, I. That's like a turd in a box. No. Uh, but we really are grateful. We really uh, are grateful. I am 
so grateful. It's so much fun to get to do this with you. I'm grateful for you, my partner in this, but also uh, for all the fun that we have and hopefully people have fun listening to it. Vice News had this expose on, quote, the reporters who survived the Capitol riot. Let me make sure. uh, Let me make sure I'm getting this right. Reporters who survived the Capitol riot are still struggling. And these reporters recount the trauma that they suffered. I don't want to minimize the the Capitol riot, which was terrible, or or the trauma suffered. Sure, it was traumatic. But— all of the reporters who covered the riot survived. Yes. So, you know, okay. You can't say for all the police and for all the rioters. Beyond that, this is like committing the cardinal journalistic sin that we increasingly see of making yourself the story. So when I, I, when I, I, when I saw this article, and I, I again, in no, in no means minimize the, the siege of the Capitol and in no way discount the fact that the, these reporters did experience trauma. But it did make me think of my old friend Mike Hedges, uh, with whom I worked at the Washington Examiner, who covered every American conflict, I believe, from Panama through Iraq and domestics. He covered Katrina and all kinds of stuff, eating camel bolognese, uh, getting dysentery in in Somalia, just all Failed of in comparison, though. To the well, but but the, but the thing is, ride. he he wears it as a badge of pride, right? This is like, this is the stuff that I survived. This is the, I, I got to see this stuff happen. I got to see history happen and I survived. And he would tell you that the camel bolognese wasn't that bad. So I guess I. Camel bolognese? Camel bolognese. Like the animal with the hump? Yeah, the, the hump, one hump or two. Wow. I guess it's like, you should be proud that you were there to cover a huge history-making story, and these are the stories that you're going to dine out on and have drinks with with your friends for the rest of your daggone career. So, you know, get hip to the camel bolognese, folks. There's there's so many layers to this, like an onion. I just love the conceit that, you know, you and I, we only have BAs. We couldn't possibly understand a graduate school academic theory that's as sophisticated and complicated as critical race theory. Um, But the entire segment, it basically pits a Philadelphia teacher who says she teaches through the framework of critical race theory and essentially people portrayed as like stupid Fox News viewers saying that they're concerned about this. And I just wanted to play some of the hard hitting questions that Reeve asked the teacher. Are you teaching children to hate America? Are you teaching white kids to hate themselves for being white? All these opponents of critical race theory told us that, sure, racism was a problem in the past, but it's not now. And so we got into these long conversations about when exactly they thought racism had ended in America. And they didn't have a good answer. The idea that this is an accurate presentation of the two sides of this debate about what should be taught in our schools is so laughable. And the sneering condescension from the CNN correspondent is incredible. But the the coda to this is that I went on Twitter and I looked up this teacher who's profiled in the piece who says, of course, I'm not teaching children to hate America. Of course, I'm not teaching white kids to hate themselves for being white. Uh, This is just, I just want to teach them history. Oh, before I get it to that, I love, like, on the one hand, these people are saying, 
critical race theory is an obscure graduate student theory, and that's not what's being taught in schools. On the other, they're like explaining to us why the critical race theory being taught in schools is, you know, an accurate framework through which to to understand things. Uh, so this teacher has a series of tweets in late June where she explains what she's teaching and what is the correct way to teach about the founding fathers and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. So she says, as for the founding fathers, Jefferson continued the policy of land theft by buying Louisiana from the French. And he did this all while enslaving a lot of people, not to mention that it wasn't either of the colonizers land to sell. Hashtag critical race theory. Next up. George Washington defeated Britain after the U.S. committed hashtag treason because they wanted to expand land and slavery and didn't want to pay taxes. Well, I'll I'll say that when now that Nicole Hannah Jones is at Howard, uh, they can talk about the 1619 project. Uh, And then she says, are you dumb? The letter U. But you, the letter U, can just say he became president and used black slaves' teeth for dentures, which I'm not totally understanding what's happening here. I don't think but, he used uh, slaves' teeth for slaves' teeth. For, he used hippopotamus teeth. I know that that's true. So I was so struck by these tweets because, first of all, like th- she says this is what she's teaching. Uh, and the idea, they portray the idea that some parents might object to their children learning American history through this lens is... The stuff of the yokels and bigots and simple-minded folk who watch Fox News is unbelievable to me. Essentially, like, CNN should have just been airing propaganda for the teacher and for those pushing critical race theory. And that is, like, sadly the state of much of our our media today. I'm going to read you two corrections from the New York Times two years apart. Here's August 2019. Uh, an article on Tuesday about a 1996 law meant to prevent young Internet companies from liability misidentified the law that protects hate speech. It is the First Amendment, not <laughs> Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And so that was 2019 laws. But then July 9th, an earlier version of this article misstated what allows social media firms to remove posts that violate their standards. It is the First Amendment, not Section 230. So to everyone. It's- Don't worry, though. What we really need kids to learn in school is anti-racism that's right we they need to be they need to be sent uh what's his name kendy uh they need to be sent how to be an anti-racist uh and read that but new york times i i love you for trying and there are very many people who chef's are, kiss who are trying to, who are trying to cover this story and not trying as hard as you are so i appreciate you at least saying yes free speech it's a thing chris we've gotten saturation media coverage of the texas democrats who fled the state to protest the passage of new voting restrictions down in Texas, and they turned their trip to D.C. into a COVID super spreader event. <laughs> Your bounce on the media coverage. Well, it's been pretty impressively stupid, even for what is typically stupid political coverage. It, it, it is the press's fault to a certain degree, but it does, in fact, start with politicians lying about what they're doing. So uh, let's go. Let's just cut to the press part. Well, no, 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 no. So the and w- separating the right wing press from the Republican Party and the left wing and the, the mainstream or left wing press from the Democratic Party uh, is an exercise in futility. So you kind of got to do them both at the same time. If so, the Texas Republicans, Greg Abbott's worried about getting primaried. So they have a stunt special session to address either non-existent or very narrow problems, including changes to Texas voting laws that are 
unnecessary. Well, I mean, look, you can do them, but they're unnecessary. Democrats then say this is an assault on democracy as we know it, right? So this rather benign— The biggest threat since—didn't Biden say it was the biggest threat since the Civil War or something? Yep. Uh, or that was Saki, but the White House definitely has has been very loose about comparing these pandering, unnecessary changes that Republicans are making— To literal civil to, rights to, As Biden said, Jim Crow 2.0. Yeah. So the Texas Democrats have gone from the state, something that's happened before, and it, it's a stunt. So the Republicans have a stunt, and then the Democrats have a stunt uh, to, against the stunt, and the Democrats— I take issue with your putting those two— s- stunts, quote unquote, on the same level. But uh, well, anyways. I, I mean, I, I, I'm there is some uh, moral relativism here. But look, it is not relative and is absolutely plain is that the coverage of what the Democrats was doing was preposterously overblown. It Beyond was, that, can we just talk about like, of co- I, I to- that's totally true. But they get on a private jet None of them are wearing masks. They're all violating COVID rules. It brought me to mind of, and then like they all get COVID. Yeah. And it brought me to mind of of the Trump White House events for Amy Coney Barrett first uh, to celebrate yeah, yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. There were like two different events. One was to actually announce her nomination. Mike the other Pompeo was, like, going around breathing on congrats, Yeah, congratulate her. And like it was wall to wall coverage of the disregard for science. I was way more obsessed with the COVID hypocrisy or it's not hypocrisy. It's just the tendentious coverage of the press. And so the New York Times writes about the Texas Democrats and the headlines were Texas Dems face COVID outbreak. Uh, Like they had nothing to do with it's the passive voice that uh, I like chastise my reporters for all the time. So they write, Democratic state lawmakers from Texas arrived in Washington last week with plans to apply unending pressure on the Senate to pass voting rights protections that would help counteract a Republican election overhaul bill back home. Then a COVID-19 outbreak stalled their progress. Somehow. Flashback to the New York Times' coverage of these Amy Coney Barrett events and the headlines were, Showtime in a potential Petri dish. White House is not tracing contacts for super spreader Rose Garden event. By the way, like the word super spreader for these Texas Dems who have like infected a Pelosi staffer and took it to Kamala Harris in the White House has not really been used. And finally, how the White House flouted basic coronavirus rules. So Uber, Uber drivers are getting pretty cool about and I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But Uber drivers are getting pretty cool. Like, if you want to take your mask off, they ask you if you're vaccinated and if you want to take your mask off, it's OK. But since I live on Capitol Hill, the guy goes. Do you work in Congress? <laughs> and I said, I said, no. He goes, okay, you can take your mask Are off. Are you from if you Texas, sir? So, in the long running category, we can have a subcategory on the show from me, which will be called Never Tweet. Never, ever, ever tweet. Here is a tweet that should not have been tweeted by the New York Times Justice Department correspondent, Katie Benner. Uh, as Americans, she said, we believe that state power should not be used to work against a political figure or a political party. But what happens if a politician seems to threaten the state, if the politicians continues to do so, and his entire party supports that threat, she said, of the January 6th committee. And then the thread went on from there, and she referred to enemies of the state. And She said she also said that that Trump's collusion with Russia and the two impeachments were unresolved. And so lawmakers could not be trusted to look into the Capitol riot. Here's the thing. 
I thought that the hearings themselves were staged very well. She deleted well. the tweets, we should note. She did delete the tweets, but it, it is, again, an insight onto what, how does a reporter who covers the Justice Department, so you could say, an individual could say that Donald Trump himself is a threat. Okay, you could believe that. That's fine. Uh, even a reporter could say this guy, this guy poses a threat. He tried to steal one election. You know, who knows? Okay. But the idea that the whole Republican Party, everybody is ruled out on this inquest. And this is where she has something in common with like the Lincoln Project people and the Republicans for the rule of law people and all this stuff where it's like, where are you going to get Liz Cheney? And where are you going to get Adam Kinzinger? And where are you going to get the Ben Sasses of the world? And where are you going to get the Republicans who stand up when it's hard if what you say is no Republican can participate in this and the whole party is ruled out? Uh, never tweet. Uh, never, ever, ever tweet. I guess we have two New York Times items up in this section, but a hilarious, uh, I mean, in some ways, New York Times report on the racial disparities in learning setbacks during the pandemic. At, they're reporting on a McKinsey study that found that students that more black and Hispanic students were further behind than white students, uh, you know, lost more months of education being home during the pandemic. And same with students who attended low income schools. They were ended the year seven months behind their typical performance in math versus four months for schools uh, where families were were more well off. There's some amazing quotes, which I'll get to. But essentially, it says like staying staying at home hurt black, Hispanic and poor kids more than it hurt white and rich kids. Okay, but then it doesn't mention the unions like who was driving this policy to have kids be at home learning and not a single mention of the unions. And then I love the quotes in the piece. Uh, This woman is quoted Anne Ishimaru, who is an associate professor at the University of Washington College of Education. Don't send your kids there, folks. She says, quote, the problem with the learning loss narrative is it is premised on a set of racialized assumptions and focused on test scores. And she goes on to say that kids of color are presumed to be harmed by staying at home, but that is not right because they were better off because they didn't have to deal with micro and macro aggressions and other challenges no, they encounter in that. schools. That was not published um, in a newspaper. Beyond that. Are you serious? They then uh, they then say that many children learned a lot in the past year and a half, just not reading and writing. So, so wait, what wait, if this uh, woman, I just want to stop you. <laughs> this woman said, and I, you have it here in front of me and I can see and it And is like quoted as a serious, you know, some kind of expert. That this woman said that her conversations with families of color suggested some children preferred learning remotely because they did not have to deal with micro and macro aggressions and other challenges they encounter in school. Well, let me tell you something. And just for the, for the Times to quote that is like, oh, yeah, I certainly agree with you that. Well, they fell behind in reading, reading and writing. But like, look, we got to get the other side in here. It's the other perspective. And, and that the that the other, the real other side, which is placing blame at the feet of the teachers unions as it, as they do. Look, parents are part of it, uh, but teachers unions are, are, are a part of it, too. And ignoring that isn't helpful. But here's what's really not helpful about this and a lot of the coverage about racial disparities in the pandemic. You know the old joke about the New York Times headline on the last day on Earth? No. Uh, world ends, comma, women, comma, minorities hardest hit. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah the, exactly. The, the poor people suffer 
more than rich people in everything. We live in a country where poor people, so rich people go to Costco, and uh, when you buy Diet Coke, uh, you can go to Costco and you can buy Diet Coke for pennies for a can. A poor person walks to a neighborhood store and buys a 22-ounce bottle for $2.35. It is bad to be poor. It's not good to be poor, and it's bad in every single component in terms of health outcomes, and we can talk about this with vaccinations. We can talk about this. Coming from a poor family with low educational attainment is a massive disadvantage, period, period, period. And I just always to be your hillbilly correspondent here, always to stick up. I, I, I hate having to, to do it all the time, but I have to say. You could do the same overlay with poor white kids, too. I'm not saying that there are not special disadvantages that uh, minorities and non-white people face in the United States. But a lot of this conversation is about poverty. And a lot of this conversation is about, yes, structural racism is real. Institutional racism is real. But let's remember, if you are the child of an affluent non-white family, your outcomes are very, very close to other affluent people of other races. And that's a fact. Chris, I don't think this first one is going to shock anybody. Uh, <laughs> Cuomo, Cuomo, Cuomo. Uh, but all the different media aspects to this Cuomo scandal, the boosting of Andrew Cuomo, and then the sharp turn and the coverage of him and the involvement of CNN and Chris Cuomo. I've been most interested by the CNN aspect to this. So by way of background, back in May, we learned that Chris Cuomo, who hosts a CNN primetime show, was advising his brother on how to respond to allegations of sexual harassment from multiple women. We did not have the receipts. Uh, this was a Washington Post report. So CNN said that his actions were, quote, inappropriate, uh, but did not discipline him. Let's get Chris Cuomo's apology from back in May. I thought it was pretty illuminating. Let's play that clip. Now, today, there are stories out there about me offering my brother advice. Of course I do. This is no revelation. I'm family first, job second. When my brother's situation became turbulent, being looped into calls with other friends of his and advisors that did include some of his staff, I understand why that was a problem for CNN. It will not happen again. It was a mistake, and I am sorry for that. This is a unique and difficult situation, and that's okay. I know where the line is. I can respect it and still be there for my family, which I must. Okay, so he said he knows where the line is. Well, now we know precisely where that line is, because New York Attorney General Letitia James's report comes out. And in the appendix, we get Chris Cuomo's email to his brother and his brother's public relations advisors, providing not just any brotherly advice, but advice about how to undermine claims from women accusing the governor of sexual harassment. And excuse me while I pull this up, uh, the his proposed statement that Andrew Cuomo should give was so bad and stupid. It was bad. It was, uh, bad. It was pathetic. But dare, I, I might even say Fredo-esque. It was Fredo-esque. Fredo Fredo Fredonian. So it, it started and... We're going to put the link to the appendix of this report in our show notes, so check that out. It starts, accusations have been made, and as any Beacon reporter knows, I hate the passive voice. Any reporter worth their salt, journalist worth their salt should hate the passive voice, so that was funny. But what I thought was doubly funny was 
this idiot puts his stuff in writing. Like he doesn't just get on the phone and nobody ever has to know, but be like, actually puts this in writing. That being said, there was all this brouhaha about Cuomo now that the attorney general's report has come out, not covering the scandal. And let's play that clip where Cuomo tosses to Don Lemon, Cuomo who had mentioned it, Don Lemon, who is beginning a show at this. Let's play that. I'm going to make my witness, as you say, and you make know your what? Witness. I love you, brother. I love you, Dean Lemon. All right. This is Don Lemon tonight. The calls are getting louder and louder. This is what I'm talking about. Top Democrats from New York to the White House calling on Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign. That in the wake of the bombshell report from the state's attorney general that alleges the governor sexually harassed 11 women, including state employees and a New York state trooper. My hot take on this, Chris, is it doesn't freaking matter. This is all CNN going through the motions of being a responsible news organization when they know and we know and anybody with two brain cells knows that they're a political organization. And I find it funny that, you know, Chris Cuomo was doing all these interviews with his brother during COVID, which were basically in-kind political donations to his brother. But it was only inappropriate when the sexual harassment stuff came up and you know, as far as CNN goes, like, spare us. Um, we know that he's a political actor, and we know that you don't care he is. He wasn't disciplined. And, like, we see these people for what they are. So I find this going through the motions just totally ridiculous. Biden honeymoon is over. I say play the sound. Play the sound. You told me a few months ago that you thought it was entirely likely that the Taliban would be taking over the country. But President Biden, quote, the likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. He was wrong. The president has spoken to this issue a number of times in, in recent weeks. He, we expect he has that he not looked to it again. John, totally different story than a few weeks ago, right? I mean, why isn't he out there now? Kabul fell yesterday. Where is the president? Well, I'm curious to hear your reaction of this consequential speech by the American president didn't run from it, he owned it. I hope he gets to own their deaths too. I feel like I watched a different speech than the rest of you guys. I was appalled. That is a montage of the coverage of the chaos that has ensued since the Biden administration ordered with the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan. And I have to say, Chris, like the print coverage has been just as brutal. The Washington Post had a piece with the headline, Chaos undercuts Biden claim to competence and a quote from that piece that the images from Afghanistan have put on vivid display an inability to plan, an underestimation of a foreign adversary, an ineffective effort to scramble and make up for it. And as Biden demonstrated in a brief address Monday, an attempt to deflect full responsibility. I think that pretty much covers it. Ouch. Ouch. Chris Cuomo <laughs> took to the airwaves at CNN and he is breaking his silence on uh, what are we calling this scandal? Nah, the, the Brothers Cuomo scandal. The least the, of, of all of the Fairly Brothers movies, the least favorite. You know, there's that saying like when you're digging a hole, drop the shovel. Right. Uh, so, no. This guy persists in digging the hole, and here he is explaining his situation, which included communications advice on how to discredit women who accused his brother of sexual harassment. Oh, the Hillary go. Clinton. Yeah. It was a unique situation being a brother to a politician in a scandal and being part of the media. 
I tried to do the right thing. And I just want you all to know that. I just like the conceit that he was unprepared for a unique situation. His part of his job is not being prepared for unique situations. And it's the effort that counts. He tried to do the right thing. He tried. I, I say this and I don't want to undercut our own subbeat here, but I am with these people now. Who could care at this? Like, I'm with you. Honest to goodness. If you thought that you were getting the straight dope from Chris Cuomo. Yeah, to be you, expected. If you thought that that was where you were getting the real unbiased, totally straight down the middle. Then you really appreciate his apology. Then you're like, wow, he's really yeah. trying. But if you think that, then you you probably are a couple of McNuggets short of a Happy Meal. Okay. I The headline just tickled me so much was about the multiracial America. Oh, I have it up. So the headline is multiracial population grew in almost every county in the U.S. This is CNN reporting on the latest census results. It doesn't mean racism is over, is the CNN headline. It doesn't mean racism is over. Racism had ended. You are wrong, racist. You are wrong. You are even more secretly racist than the coverage of the census results, which came out last week, that talk about the change in America. I should first say something boring, which is that the real reason for the huge shift, one of the biggest reasons for the huge shift in numbers of multiracial Americans is that the Census Bureau, which until the year 2000, only allowed you to have one race or ethnicity, and then in 2010 tried to open it up a little bit, has opened it up even more so that you can have a, you can describe yourself in more unique terms or more descriptive terms than just white, black. You uh, must be able to self-identify. Well, and I love the what that it's check white, enter what kind of white you are. Are you a German? Yeah. Are you a or and my favorite was Egyptian. And I'm like, I know a lot of people who are white and not white who would disagree with a lot of your descriptors of where things are going. But who cares? The point is the coverage left and right was pretty bonkers. And you had, I think it was Charles Blow wrote this piece that was like, yeah, white America, it's over. Like the enthusiasm, the excitement with which the resumption of a previously disrupted narrative about the end of majority white America, which by the way, is not right around the corner no matter what happens because this is still a 68% white country and it will still be a plurality white country for a century or whatever. But anyway, the leaving that aside, and then you have Tucker Carlson and others who say they want whites to go away and you should be afraid. And so I'm looking at all this coverage and I, as a person who loves demography, go and read the when you look at the actual numbers, what the numbers say is America's doing a great job on race, aside from the way the press covers it, is that we have more intermarriage between racial and ethnic groups. One in five children is now the or one in five marriages is now between two ethnic groups. How we understand whiteness, how we understand blackness, how we all of this stuff is always changing. It's not fixed. And the obsession with fixity of race is un-American, it's racist unto itself, and it informs all of this coverage that somehow how white you are or how black you are, and I will promise you this, and I wrote about this for the dispatch on Tuesday, I promise you this, the people who the Census Bureau now considers white, my grandmother's generation were not right. like, oh yeah, totally, are you Syrian? Yeah, hey white guy, you wanna come over for chicken and dumplings <laughs> after church on Sunday? No. 
these constructs, race is a construct and we do, it does change over time. And there isn't a black race and a white race and a Hispanic race and da-da. No, we are a species that has a lot of diversity within it. And in the United States, we have managed to harmonize in really good ways, except for the fact that we have a press and a political class that tends to focus on the pluribum and not the unus. How do I say? Plus one. Okay. Subscribe. There you yeah. go. <laughs> My two cents is it is distasteful, even if accurate, for an American president to blame his predecessors for the crises that he is dealing with. It is equally distasteful, I think, for the media to engage in this. Like, the truth is... Yeah. It basically is Biden's fault. Of course, we know, like, lots of people contributed to this, but... It's also distasteful for people who supported the previous administration to pretend that it's 100% Biden's fault and that, that Trump had nothing to do with this. I, the the Trump is just a continuation... Or Biden is just a continuation of, like, what Trump would have liked to see happen in Afghanistan. But ultimately, the person responsible is the guy who was sitting there when... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, my complaint about this debate about fault is... The it's all Biden's fault argument relies on the idea that somehow this would have been good under Donald Trump. That and my favorite, I've and I've no, it doesn't. I've made. I don't think it would have been good under Trump. No, and I do think it's all Biden's fault. But you're, so. but you're, but you're not a weirdo. You're a non-weirdo. Jake Tapper tweet caught my attention. He said uh, maybe three days ago, we have higher standards for game show hosts than for members of Congress. Definitely a sign of a healthy society with its priorities in order. Yes, you have to tell you have to tell the context. I actually don't remember the context. Jeopardy. Oh, sorry. Yes, Jeopardy got rid of its the guy who was supposed to be the host, and then they moved him back to executive producer. He like Dick Cheney'd the process where he was leading the process to find the Trebek replacement. Yeah, and now they, he quit. Oh, now he's quit all the way. Yeah, so he's totally. You know. Speaking of which, I just thought this was rich. It's glass houses, don't throw stones. CNN has no standards. Chris Cuomo is still employed, was not disciplined for his behavior. Jeffrey Tubin, our wonderful producer, Alex, pointed out that in the fulsome coverage of the new Texas abortion law, they brought on none other than Jeffrey Tubin, not on Jake Tapper's show, but this, these are the same people who pay his bills on a different CNN show. And he had this to say. This is the first time an outright ban has been allowed by the Supreme Court to go into effect. And it is not going to be just Texas uh, if, the, if the Supreme Court d continues not to step in, because every other law... Uh, in the many other red states that have been trying to ban abortion, they're going to pass copycat laws. And this is not um, th this is not the end of the fight. Uh, this is just the beginning of the end of Roe v. Wade. All right. I just want to remind listeners that Jeffrey Tubin is the same man whipping out his private parts on a Zoom call is like far from the most objectionable thing that Jeffrey Tubin has done. He yep. he knocked up the daughter of his friend, his friend Jeff Greenfield. He knocked up the daughter, Casey. He reportedly offered her money to get an abortion, which she declined, and he didn't want to pay child support. Yeah. This is These are the standards that Jake Tapper is talking about. These kinds and of... I don't want to make editorial standards. I don't want to make light of a serious subject, but Jeffrey Tubin should have disclosed that he is a person who has an interest in access to abortions before he should have disclosed yeah. uh, his conflict on this one. And I honestly don't know 
why why does CNN feel like it needs why does the world feel like it needs Jeffrey Tubin? Chris, I don't know if this is like a most important story, but we've got to talk about it, which is the Rolling Stone essentially uh, retraction without calling it a retraction of their piece that claimed that the rise in the number of people using ivermectin, which is both a drug used on farm animals and used in people in smaller doses. They were saying the emergency rooms are so filled with these people that they can't take in gunshot victims. And this is due to the misinformation being spread by right wing. You got to give you got to get So the, this is, I love this story. I'm so glad you want, you picked it because it's got a great life cycle. This has a great dumb media life cycle where you have a local story that is too good to check that then feeds into the national narrative. It was amazing because the whole story, when you go read it, is based on the account of one doctor Mm -hmm. and they didn't go ask the hospital for comment. The doctor is affiliated with uh, a few hospitals. They didn't ask the hospitals for comment. And he says the ERs are so backed up that gunshot victims were having hard times getting in the into facilities where they can get definitive care and be treated. So the article comes out and a hospital then comes out of the woodwork, which let's just like back up for a second. That's shoddy journalism. It is, of course, too good to check and fits into the media's narrative. But, you know, not asking basic entities involved in the story for comment like the hospitals are is this actually happening there is is ridiculous and then my favorite line on you know they published a correction when the hospital denied that this was taking place and they say oklahoma specific ivermectin overdose figures are not available but the count is unlikely to be a significant factor in hospital bed availability in a state that per the cdc currently has a seven day coverage seven day average of about 1500 COVID hospitalizations. Yeah. So that was my one favorite part. My other favorite part was they then reached out to the doctor who told them all this stuff to say, hey, the hospital's disputing. He's completely ghosting them. Well, so they got fleeced. Joe Rogan, here was his statement. He said, the grand conspiracy is that the pharmaceutical companies, and he was talking to, was he talking, not Tom Papa, but one comedian. The, Joe Rogan is worth listening to just for the comedians who come on his show, if you receive it as comedy. The grand conspiracy is that pharmaceutical companies are in cahoots to try to make anybody who takes the stuff look crazy. But what's, what's the cra- this stuff in question? Ivermectin. But what's crazy is look how better I got. I got better pretty quick, B-word. I got better pretty quick, B-word. So if you're taking your medical advice from somebody who says, I got better pretty quick, B-word, uh, maybe look around, maybe ask. And uh, with all of this stuff, I wish that the press, and I know that there's a huge demand for COVID coverage in every aspect that you possibly can, and blah, 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 blah. But every story should just basically be, here's something that we heard. Now, ask your doctor. You have a doctor. It is basically the law in the United States that you have access to a doctor now. So ask your doctor whether horse dewormer is right for you. Oh, the Matt Taibbi thing. All right, over to you. I don't want to, I don't want to. And I'm sure NPR did not mean it to be as bad. Uh, all right, all right. Like the apologetics. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't mean it to be as bad as this. Insert Chris is apologetic for somebody but, who did something stupid. But Matt, but I mean, people do stupid stuff, and I don't, I don't impute ill will to them. 
But the obliviousness of the, on the media, their media show, they had Matt Taibbi, who formerly worked for Rolling Stone. Matt Taibbi at his TK News Substack talks about the conversation on the media, on on the media, where they talked about free, the dangers of free speech. Free speech is, is pretty dangerous. And there's a, they go after, of all, here's how you know you're deep in the nerd weeds. They're going after John Stuart Mill and his crucial defense of free speech and the philosophical backdrop of this to ask new questions like, well, maybe speech is violence. And maybe we can't really have people say whatever they want and all that stuff. And it was just- they, a, Their argument was we need to take into account the psychological impact impact of some speech that speech free speech is not cost free etc etc which like does anybody think it is i don't think there's anybody arguing that my real beef having listened to the podcast was there was no alternate point of view on there it was just a bunch of people saying you know people's hurt feelings and trauma caused by speech mean uh, we got the first amendment wrong i hate picking on max boot at the washington post so much but he does address he does speak to a serious problem that left or center left or mainstream, whatever you want to call it, media has about talking about conservatives. So, and this is sort of the MSNBC model, where you bring self-loathing conservatives on television to have them talk about how terrible conservatives are. And, you know, Jen Rubin, the Post also has her but there, there's this there's this subset we'll call them Morning Joe conservatives who that's a really good category where it's like you're you're one of them absolutely not that you is are, absolutely oh my God. A false accusation you're, you know what we were just talking this week about how one of my obsessions has to be Chris is a lib and then we're gonna do a montage <sighs> of like Chris's biggest lib moments but this is why you're a mo- Morning I'm, Joe conservative I'm sorry I'm sorry I have never been on Morning Joe. You worked for let's to be clear. You worked for you worked for Politico and CNN. Oh, but I also worked for Sean Hannity. Yeah, and I also worked for Fox News and the Washington Examiner. I am more conservative than you are, madam. I would I would maintain. Is there like an issue that you would point to? I don't know. We can do we we can devote a whole. We should totally have a conservative conservative off. We can we can on like various issues. We we should set a date. We should set a date certain in the future. Who is more conservative? And I, I will. I w- will go down defending the Texas legislature. <laughs> well, not, not me, <laughs> not not me, because I'm a conservative. Good stuff. Not me, because okay. I'm conservative. So I read this piece by Philip Bump, and it's like a, the vis- the visual image of a white man riding down and whipping with a whip in his hand. It's like, Dad, go on. They're using whips down there. That's crazy. I can't believe it. Well, within hours, that story had changed. And Philip Bump wrote through a story. He kept the story up. It's like, well, it's still the imagery, even though the Im- and he, I don't think he addressed it, but it was like, even though this imagery isn't what we said it was, it's still evocative of this thing. This is like there are were you, you remember the I've linked the current article in the show notes, which is updated. It's now what one photo from the border crisis from the border tells us about the evolving migrant. This is crisis. this is like the term. And it just says at the top, this article has been updated without <laughs> indicating how it has this, been. Up- this article has been updated as we won't tell you what we got right. as semiotic garbage. Chris, the first one is so obvious, and I have like 10 million things to say about it. We got Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, testifying under oath before the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, was it? No, Armed Services. The Senate Armed Services. And then, we're, and, we, and we should say we're recording early this week. This is Wednesday. So he's he, before House. He, so today yeah. he's before the House. And, and not surprisingly, uh, performative Congressman Matt Gates had uh, many feelings today in the House, but th- their testimony continues. And the first thing I want to say 
is how right you were. Let's let's build up to it. Okay. <laughs> you want Guys, to you gotta build victory. up to like I need like okay. I need to like cl- climb this mountain slowly and know that there's this wonderful treat for me at the top. So <laughs> let's play what Millie said, which it didn't it, the thing is what it, it didn't contradict what Bob Woodward and Bob Costa wrote in their book, but it did suggest they omitted a really important what detail. They, what will you tell? It would have changed what, the story. So, so the no, no, I want to let's play okay. the Millie clip. By the United States, I know, I am certain that President Trump did not intend to attack the Chinese, and it is my directed responsibility, and it was my directed responsibility by the Secretary to convey that intent to the Chinese. My task at that time was to de-escalate. My message again was consistent. Stay calm, steady, and de-escalate. We are not going to attack you. At Secretary of Defense Esper's direction, I made a call to General Lee on 30 October. Eight people sat in that call with me, and I read out the call within 30 minutes of the call ending. So Milley told the Congress that his communications with this Chinese general were with the knowledge and coordination of civilian oversight. And that I have not read the book, but at least in the news accounts. In the excerpt, excerpt, and we devoted uh, most of an episode to talking about this and the anonymous sourcing and the the strong intimation in the book was that he was freelancing and was going outside of the chain of command. And that doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't seem to be the case. They, it would seem, left out of their book that this was coordinated and done with the approval of the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper. And the other thing that Milley said that I thought was interesting was he said, it was my job to communicate the president's intention. And I knew the president had no intent of attacking China. Yep. And I thought that was... Interesting. That actually made sense. And I think the way that it was written up in the press accounts and in the book is that the Chinese, like the New York Times writes that Milley had to reassure uh, the Chinese that Donald J. Trump had no plans to attack China in an effort to remain in power and that the United States was not collapsing, which it just seems overheated and like a distortion of what actually occurred here. Unless Millie lied under oath, in which case, like, we've got a different... Well, uh, for, so can we now talk about how right you were? Have you climbed yes. high so, up on the map? So a couple of weeks ago, I said to Chris on this on this very show, Chris did a, went on a diatribe against anonymous sources, and I said, Chris, okay, like, they're anonymous, quote, unquote, but obviously Millie was the source for this, so let's cut to yesterday's hearing. And this is Marsha Blackburn, Tennessee senator, asking, putting some questions to Millie. General Millie, um, yes or no to this. Did you talk to Bob Woodard or Robert Costa for their book, Peril? Woodward, yes. Costa, no. All right, Chris, I'm ready. So my point was, who knows? But you said your reporter's intuition told you it had to be Millie. And you were right. And I would further say, shame on Mark Millie for doing this kind of anonymous source book, uh, what possibly, if you are the top uh, military officer in the United States, what possible business do you have canoodling with Bob Woodward and Bob Costa? And, and Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker right, and, and Michael Bender. Yep. With the Associated Press, 
somebody called Terrence Frazier. I assume he is actually Terrence Frazier. Uh, writing that the National School Boards Association to the Biden administration, pressing them to investigate threats against school board members and a public big, school a big, officials. A big letter of anxiety yeah. sent to the Biden administration so with big feelings. The headline is, Posts mischaracterized school board organization's letter to Biden. What are posts? He's like correcting random people on social media. But anyhow, the fact check reveals that Terrence did not actually read the letter because in the letter it says, as these acts of malice, violence, and threats against public school officials have increased, the classification of these heinous actions could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, but, blah, blah. But, you know, this is, like, ridiculous on two levels. First, clearly, you didn't read the letter or you have, like, right, terrible reading. Right, right. That's the Second, thing. If you want to be a fact checker, please read the letter. Read the whole thing from the beginning to the end and don't just put it on Twitter so that you can have tingles. Katie Couric editing her, admitting to editing her interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg to protect the dementia-ridden elderly RBG Elvit, um, who said, thank, "Thank God she was there." Yes, did not kneel for the anthem. It's disrespectful. But the thing that jumped out—that's oh, ridiculous. Well, you got to you got to you got to tell him what she said. His name was Colin Kaepernick. The uh, year you you say what she said, and then I'll move on. In when the Colin Kaepernick, Katie Couric interviewed Ruth Bader Ginsburg as the Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the national anthem controversy, which Donald Trump rolled around in like a dog in a dead deer, and that became this huge national controversy and was this the starting point for so much of this discussion. What did what did Ginsburg say? We we find out in Katie Couric's book that she said, I want to get I want to get the she quote. She said it's disrespectful of your grandparents and your ancestors and people who fought for freedom in this country to kneel during the anthem. Basically. She said she said the correct, truthful thing. She said the honest thing, which is you're not going to attract people to your cause by disrespecting yeah. the national anthem. That's not going to cause Americans to go, hold on, tell me more. And it is interesting, like the protests, the social protests that have been most effective have harnessed like the Ameri- American ideas yes. that you need to apply them to us rather than saying like the country's irredeemable. But, but. Here's the quote. Would I arrest them for doing it? No, she told Couric. I think it's dumb and disrespectful. I ha- I would have the same answer. If you ask me about flag burning, I think it's a terrible thing to do, but I wouldn't lock a person up for doing it. I would point out how ridiculous it seems to me to do such an act. So Couric cuts it out. She has the common sense position. She well, she has the normal, I would say, a, the very American position, yeah. which is, you know, uh, my country right or wrong. When it's right to be kept right and when it's wrong to be put right. And that's what we're, the, this is the common endeavor that we're engaged in. But the fact that Katie Couric thought that it, the right thing to do was to cut out what would have been the single most newsworthy yeah, totally. part of the interview is crazy to me. I spent 15 years pretending to be a white guy. <laughs> so she tells the story about how she was the food critic for the, I want to, for the news press of Fort Myers, Florida, where my dad used to go in the winter for uh, school because he had scarlet fever. Shout out scarlet fever survivors. Very, it's a very niche podcast, but he, uh, she writes this piece about how she got to be the food critic for there, and the food critic has 
uh, wrote under a pseudonym, and she wrote under the pseudonym for 15 years. Now, to talk about the how far we've fallen in terms of our cultural standards, the joke is that the food critic, and she was not the first of these, that she was only one in a long line since 1979 to write under this nom de plume, which is Jean Leboeuf, Leboeuf. which is French for John the Beef. So Jean Leboeuf is clearly a joke. No one thinks that anyone is named who is the uh, the media, the food critic is named Jean Leboeuf. It is a joke, poking fun at fussy French culture. So she says, quote, I liked being a French dude, perhaps because I'm not at all a French dude. I'm a half Filipina, half Yugoslavian slash English slash Canadian. And what's a Canadian anyway? Uh, woman born one year after Leboeuf was created in the same place he was created, a city named for a Confederate colonel. Dun, dun, dun. So she goes on and just writes forever. She just writes forever. And she talks about how she loved doing it because it connected her to her father who died when she was young. It was all very beautiful. She seemed to under, she was like, she, she, it was like she was standing at the edge of, of getting it, but then could not get it at all because she says that she was given all this privilege because people thought she was a white man. No one thought you were anything. (laughs) Your name was Jean Leboeuf. No one thought that. So she says that she's thinking about how all the consequences of all of this and all of these things. And she said, I was afraid that if people knew who I really was, the terrible things they'd say, why don't you stick to Asian food, do all this stuff. So she ruins Jean Leboeuf for the newspaper and for everybody, this cute little tradition that they had uh, there in Fort Myers, Florida, and ruins it for everybody so that she can live out loud and have more attention for herself as a partially Canadian woman writing in Florida in a town named for a Confederate general. And she does all this. And you, and here's the, the part that makes me the most just cuckoo about this. What did she find when she ruined it for everyone and came out as herself? Nothing. Nothing happened. People were really nice to her and it was fine. And she and it none of the things that she was afraid would happen. And she was like, it was really great that I came out. And hi, Annabelle. I didn't get hate mail. People wrote, thank you and great job. So you were right before that they would have been racist before. But now that you have undone Mr. Leboeuf and destroyed the fantasy of the Leboeufian fantasy, that you are now not attacked. It's just it's one of the worst things. I just it's preposterous. I think we have to talk about the Politico scoop that we haven't seen or heard from Pete Buttigieg very much in the past four months or so. He's been back more recently, but Politico reveals. When did this, when was the revelation? Because I came to this story belatedly. When, when the revelation did... was a week ago. Oh, God. About a week ago in Politico's West Wing newsletter and that they inquired as to, you know, why he hadn't been doing interviews and out and about. And they said, actually, Pete Buttigieg has been on paternity leave for the past three months, and he's just coming back now. What I found, so I don't have any strong view on paternity leave or no paternity leave, which which seemed to be where this argument was cleaving. But I thought this should have been a bigger story, that he went on paternity leave, and he did it. He's the Secretary of Transportation. And he didn't make an announcement to the public that he wasn't going to be on the job. And 
you know, I, I guess normally I would say the Secretary of Transportation is kind of irrelevant, but right now we have a lot of transportation-related crises, and it seemed to me uh, there was a little bit of hiding the ball going on, and that's a big deal. I have been struck that we now know from documents uh, that have come out that the National Institute of Health was uh, is, funding. Is this the um, Rand Paul? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. This 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 gain of function research. Gain of function research. I, I'm actually not. My obsession with this isn't that you know Fauci lied or whatever. But I'm surprised that there hasn't been more media coverage of the fact that yes, in fact, the National Institute of Health, contrary to what many people there and affiliated with them said was funding gain-of-function research, not necessarily, oh, Fauci's a liar, which it appears he, you know, he was very clever in his answers and, he, you know, he was fundamentally Political. dishonest. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I'm surprised, at, and I wonder if it's like, is it embarrassing for them to admit this after they said, like, the lab leak theory was racist? But uh, Because normally, when the U.S. government, I don't think it's the U.S. government's fault that this happened or anything, no. but, like, Normally, when the government is like tangentially, you know, funds X or Y or Z that yeah. comes to really bad outcome, the media loves that. It's like we funded this group in Afghanistan, and now witness, I was going to say witness and, uh, Saddam Hussein in the Iran. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. there's a lot of talk about it was us the bad judgment in the U.S. That's you know political well, judgments that you're not really surprised at the lack of coverage, though. That's not. I'm, I'm not, not really. really surprised. You know that the sainted Fauci. That the the blessed Anthony Fauci, the the new Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the left, is not going. No one is going. The new Ruth Bader. That's he's, good. He's adorable, old, and nice, and seen and as. We have to protect him, and must as much Katie like Katie Couric Couric did. Say. Must must protect him. <laughs> and you know, it's funny you talk about this. Have you ever heard uh, the expression about to eat like a cowboy? No. So a cowboy only has one dish when he goes up to. And he can have beans. And then he could have chili or he could have cornbread or he could have whatever cookies going up. And he can only eat one thing at a time because he's only got one dish. And the unfortunate truth in American news today, Fauci has gotten covered. The, the story about gain-of-function research has been covered, but only mostly on right sources. Whereas there are lots of stories about things like Tucker Carlson's false flag coverage or whatever else it is that is only going to get coverage on left media. So on the, the sad truth, dear listeners, is that if you want a balanced diet, you're going to have to do one thing at a time. You're going to have to go go over here to get some news from the right. You're going to have to go to the left. You're going to have to look for these places in different places because the coverage is so siloed. Chris, a lot of reporting on the future of MSNBC with the fabulous Brian Williams announcing his exit after 30 years uh his career obviously marred by a scandal in which he misrepresented he spread some misinformation about uh being under well there's there's two to me there's two stories here there's one about brian williams and i know that you and i have have touched on this before i am much more sympathetic to brian williams than a lot of people are and we can we can who among us hasn't embellished a little bit about our well, wartime experiences. I, th I think the thing, and, and the the real story here is about what's going to happen at Totally, NBC. I agree. And so we can come back to Brian Williams. But so we've got Brian Williams is is, is out. There's reporting that uh, he might go to ABC or where? CNN Plus. CNN Plus and then someplace else that he was in negotiation so with someplace he, this else. this is not a retirement. Right. 
he, I think, was pushed out. Uh, the New- There's a New York Post story that suggests he was pushed out, which says he doesn't have the, the NBC CEO, Andy Lack, and the MSNBC per- NBC president and the MSNBC president, Phil Griffin, who were his kind of patrons, have yep. both now left. There's new Rashida blood Jones. over there, and I think she was not as big of a fan. But the question is... No Brian Williams. He was there 11 p.m. And no now, Rachel Maddow. Right. She was there 9 p.m. And she's going to step. She's going to continue to work for the network, but step back. So that sounds she like can... in some kind of programming capacity. And then so Maddow, Williams, uh, Joe and Mika in negotiations. Rachel Maddow used to be really good and she used to be interesting. She used to be funny. She had a lot of, you know, she and Roger Ailes were friends. Uh, she was a good... She was I remember a, back in the day, Tucker Carlson singing her praises. Yeah. How she is so talented, and she has exerted a ton of influence on the network over and, there. And that, that anchovy, uh, what's his name? The the guy with the glasses. Uh, Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes. I wrote a piece for National Review back in the day. We'll put it in the show notes. But it was about how Rachel Maddow had exerted all this influence over MSNBC And one of the ways in which she had done it was hiring people in her likeness, which were the wonky Democrats with glasses like Chris Hayes and and also pushing out, helping to push out the populist Democrats like does anyone remembers Ed Schultz and Al Sharpton. And it became like this intellectual wonky. She was bringing in Ezra Klein to do like seminars with. You know, NBC executives, et cetera. And by the way, MSNBC bears some responsibility for the creation of the overeducated left that David Shore writes about, that Jeff Maurer writes about, that is sort of having the moment of accountability after the Virginia loss and looking forward to the to 2022 and back at the missed gains of 2020 and what's wrong with the left. Rachel Maddow and that column of smug, intentionally nerdy, bespectacled. Uh, that attitude of elite whites was probably ultimately not good for the Democratic Party. It felt good, and it does help you with habitual viewers who look like you and sound like you, but most of America does not look like the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Another exhibit of our media's obsession with gender and race. The most New York York Times Times, headline ever. Yeah, this was like chef's kiss New York Times story. Uh, This is how they reported on the Glasgow, the climate talks in Glasgow. The headline is, Young Women Are Leading Climate Protests. Guess who runs global talks? Just guess. Yeah, that just was a rhetorical guess. question by you the Times. Guess. Okay, is it so young women? No. It's the old Times men. reporter, Samini Sengupta, tells us that, quote, Those with the power to make decisions about how much the world warms in the coming decades are mostly old and male. Yeah. <laughs> Those who are angriest about the pace of climate action are mm-hmm. mostly young and female. And then it says there is a huge gap between how the leaders and the young activists view the summit. John Kerry, the 77-year-old U.S. climate envoy, and I'm not sure why they declined to put his race in there, marveled on Friday at the progress made at this summit, but definite ageism and shade being thrown at John Kerry. And they mentioned how old Boris Johnson is and how just it – the. Uh, what struck me about this is the structural inequities on display at this climate summit. And this is why the uh, the left in the West struggles to achieve so many things. If you think that a bunch of goofballs 
who are blocking traffic on British streets to demand more insulation be placed in homes. If you think that a bunch of goofballs who are protesting and running around in the streets, if you believe that the children are the future, if you believe that the children uh, have wisdom that the olds do not, and this goes back, of course, to Greta Thunberg, the horrible, horrible... Celebrity truant. Yes, uh, patronizing, horrible coverage. What was her quote that was like, you did... Yeah, it's just the the screaming at these people and the, the contempt that she has for everyone and all of this stuff. And it's and the idea that there is surprise or whatever that, yes, guess what? The prime ministers and presidents of the world's countries are not 20 uh, year old women in a surprise move. They are not 20 year olds. But also, like, who's the audience for this? Who reads this headline on the young protesters are women? And oh, my gosh, it's old men running global talks like this to me was just such an encapsulation of what a limited audience like the Times is writing for. This is not general interest news at all. But also how counterproductive even news. But obviously the the bias of the reporter is effulgent. And if what you really wanted was action on climate change, it would be counterproductive to say. And that's why we need to bring children uh, in to lead these negotiations because they will work out better if we have a bunch of goofballs in Birkenstocks come in and do this instead of the people who were elected by their uh, respective nations. We have a our first ever joint obsession this week, which is the Bob Woodward, Bob Costa, forthcoming book excerpted in all the newspapers of how Mark Milley handled Mark Milley, chairman and joint chief of staff, handled the end of the Trump administration and his alleged phone calls to a top Chinese general and what he did or did not tell this Chinese general. I want to say at the outset that we do not know what happened in these phone calls. Can, can we read just a, a snippet of this? Here? Yeah, yeah, I have it here. OK, so they they write that in a pair of secret phone calls, General Mark A. Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, assured his Chinese counterpart. And uh, let's put this in time. One was before the 2020 election on October 30th. The other day, the other was after the January 6th riot on January 8th. So Milley assured his Chinese counterpart, whose name I am not going to attempt to pronounce, of the people's Uh, Liberation Army that the United States would not strike, according to a new book by Washington Post associate editor Bob Woodward and national political reporter Robert Costa. I think the most explosive thing they reported, Chris, was that Milley assured this general that if the U.S. were to attack, he would give him advance notice. Right. And they quote him as if they know exactly what he said, like they have a transcript. General Lee, I want to assure you that the American government is stable and everything is going to be okay. We are not going to attack or conduct any kind of kinetic operations against you. And then later, General Lee, you and I have known each other for five years now. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise. So Chris and I had very, not surprisingly, Chris and I had very different takes on this. Chris, I agree. What, I... W- let's start with yours, though. What was your, what would upset you about Well, for, this? first, can we hear the... If what Millie said, or if what Costa and Woodward allege to be true is true, then Millie should be removed, and that's the totally inappropriate. That would be a totally inappropriate action. And we do not – the military is subordinate to civilian authority. That is a cardinal constitutional precept of our republic that the military cannot freelance. 
And if what they say is true and the way that they say it is true, then Milley should be removed and it would be very serious business. But let's hear first what the how quickly, because Milley was acting against Trump and the framing of the article is that Milley was acting against Trump. Here's how Milley thought Trump was crazy, which is another aspect that I want to get you that he had, that he had a, suffered a mental decline in the last. And by and, and by the way, if Milley had gone to the Speaker of the House, the majority leader, the leaders in the Senate, gone to Mike Pence. There's any number of people that Milley could have gone to and said, I'm talking to this guy and he is yeah, The Constitution does provide ways yeah, to cuckoo. deal with this well, and that, ju- that we've heard so much about in the past but, five years. But just good, good common sense would say that you would go to, if you really thought the president was unstable and might launch an attack on China to try to hold power. And I'm not saying that Milley didn't, that Trump didn't give everybody the willies in those days. It was a very weird time and the president acting very strangely that he wouldn't have been within his rights to do those things. But listen to how quickly the defense of Milley came about this stuff. So this was totally my obsession was there are like I concede there's another side that is not our side of this, which is if this happened as they write, he should be removed. But they're not like, wow, this is really controversial and complicated. On the one hand, this is like this is the norms crowd. Remember, like this is a real breaking of a norm that has like been a cornerstone of the constitutional system for 200 years. No, we don't hear that. It's just why he was right to do this. What if Gabby Petito was fat? What if Gabby Petito was old? What if Gabby Petito was like a lot of old fat women who disappear, (laughs) right? Whose husbands murder them and are lost forever. They get a blip. What makes her story compelling is not the color of her skin. I guarantee you that if she was a... It is the attractive... Very attractive young woman full of promise. Because what makes the story tragic and makes the story compelling is that she's at the beginning of her life. She is at the beginning of her adult life. She is beautiful and she is vivacious. And you're like, here is this person full of hope and hope, full of promise. And that is snuffed out cruelly and tragically. It's a very compelling story. It's not because she's white. I promise you, if she was Jamaican, I promise you that if she was Haitian. No, she was a pretty Jamaican. Oh, no. Well, all the other, all the other variables. Pretty Asian right. woman, all the, or a pretty Indian woman. All the other variables have yes. to stay the same. Social media influencer, very attractive, young female uh, that is seemingly has a promising life in front of her. That's a story no matter what. And by the way, Joy Reid, you know what you could do on your show every week? You could tell stories about missing black women. There are a lot. It's not like there's a shortage. It's not like there's a shortage of murder victims in the United States. So every day, Joy Reid, you have a TV show. So when you have a TV show and you do media criticism, don't you dare do it if you're not doing the work yourself. Chris, the mainstream media finally admits begrudgingly that the Hunter Biden laptop is authentic. So this Politico's reporter and pal, Ben Schreckinger, Ben, I hope that doesn't tank your career, me saying you're my pal, but uh, over for Ben. So he writes in a new book that, yes, he has been able to corroborate some of these emails. They are authentic. Politico's playbook features this. It's interesting. It's really gotten no wider media coverage after all these people in October of 2020 said this is Russian disinformation banned from Twitter banned from Twitter. We can't spread misinformation. The thing that that drove me crazy about this is that conservative media has been working and like, at least to my satisfaction, successfully authenticated parts yeah. of this laptop. But 
The mainstream media will like only admit this if it is one of their own who decides to turn to it. And so often like they just ignore stories and they don't get out of conservative media. But, you know, the Beacon has been able to authenticate some of those emails. And and the New York Post, of course, is their story. They authenticated these things. Hunter Biden's former business partner, Tony Bobolinsky, had already said the emails were authentic. So I loved this New York Times story. Uh, the the headline, and I want to make sure I get it right. Headline: BIPOC or POC, equity or equality? The debate over language on the left, and it was a super interesting story. Have- Bi- is it biracial, indigenous? Per- oh, black indigenous. The young me. the younger people in the room are like yeah. making terrified faces. Our producers like- <laughs> know exactly what these things stand for. So POC is just person of color, right? So the Times writes. Unsurprisingly, the language itself has become contested, especially by, and I bolded this, conservatives who have leveraged discomfort with the new vocabulary to energize their base of white voters, referring to it as woke speak. One conservative think tank circulated a list of words, including microaggressions and Black Lives Matter, that it said could alert parents that what has been labeled critical race theory is being taught in their children's school. But the upshot of the article is about how confusing it is to people that first it was Latino and Latina as opposed to Hispanic. And now it's Latinx and whatever. The proliferation of this. I... I loved it because it really is something that's happening in our culture. People really are confused by it. What I what I was what I thought they overlooked is that wokeism and these sorts of words are an entirely almost entirely a phenomenon of the privileged white elite. So this is a very and I I'm like very, very white. You're a white lady. I am a white lady. And but, you know, I don't use any obviously don't use any of these like terms but at least have some self-awareness that this is what it is. And I really liked Barry Weiss just did a podcast with a guy who I've been following for maybe six months now. His name is Rob Henderson. He's a graduate student at Cambridge, has a really interesting newsletter. You guys should sign up. But he talked, he he coined a term called luxury beliefs, mm. which are things that um, are usually detrimental to society as a whole, but are not detrimental to the 1%. And this sort of language is these like things are a luxury belief, such as that merit doesn't matter. You can't tell someone that working hard is important because of all this systemic oppression. And he points out he's someone who was raised in the foster care system that these are bad things to tell underprivileged people. Yes. Um, Uh, This is like when uh, people talk about uh, this was at the African-American History Museum where it was like the things of whiteness and this is what whiteness is like. And one of the things that whiteness was punctuality. punctuality. You're like, actually, that's a hallmark of employed people. Employed people tend to be punctual also. And uh, we the the Beacon did a story this week on a diversity training that was conducted for the Yale Law, Law Journal where they said deadlines are uh, product of white supremacy. <laughs> and it was hilarious because the feedback was like, well, a lot of what this person said contradicts directly what we here at the Yale Law Journal do, uh, which is, you know, turn we better, things in on time. We, we better just, you know, not have deadlines anymore and bring it in whenever you want. Just drop, drop it by or don't or whatever. <laughs> My favorite item of the week is the New Yorker's interview with white fragility and nice racism author Robin D'Angelo. 
by Isaac Chotner. And he's a fantastic interviewer. And I think this interview is a demonstration of letting somebody hang themselves by their own petard. Mm. Uh, you know, Chotner just asks the questions and really does let her talk and lets people see for themselves what he, what she has to say. Who is she? Tell is us a little about the book. Robin D'Angelo, Nice Racism is just out. Read the Beacon review of it this weekend by my colleague Andrew Stiles. It's excellent. But White Fragility is the uh, D'Angelo's first book, I believe. And she's the white lady. She's who... the white lady who who posits that all white people are racist because our institutions are racist. So even and if, if you we hire don't her, understand that we're racist, we uh, reflect the racism of our institutions. And any denial of that is just a reflection of your racism. So the sort of irrefutable argument, but she has risen in prominence, like I guess in the year plus since George, George Floyd's death and commands stunning speaking fees. I, I should give say. a quick shout out to <laughs> my former free beacon colleague, Charles Lehman, who went through and found how much she's paid for speaking, which is, you know, in the 20 to $30,000 range, depending on where, but also she has an accountability page on her website where she listed all of these charities that she gives money to. And when Charles started calling them to verify this, she started editing her accountability page. Oh boy. And the accountability page now tells you don't believe anything you read in the Washington Free Beacon, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, But, but she, she was like basically her pitch is to corporations and institutions. Yeah, like I'll she come will teach come you how to. She will come and burn uh, sage leaves in the hallways and exercise the bad spirits <laughs> of institutional racism. So, so Chotner notes that in her new book, Nice Racism, which I have not read, she has a list of things that are racist and that one entry on the list is not understanding why something on this list is problematic. And he says to her, this seems to imply that someone who disagrees with you, Robin D'Angelo, is racist. Is there another tautological issue there? And the list also includes lecturing BIPOC people on the answer to racism. I'm sorry, what's a BIPOC? Black, indigenous, person of color. Oh, God. Yeah. By saying things like people just need to. And Chotner says, this was obviously written by you, a white person, in a book that tells people they, quote, need to do various things. Is there a circularity there? Uh, so props to him for wonderful interviewing. I've enjoyed his interviews before. I'm continuing my obsession with Michael Wolff, who uh, told Brian Stelter why he came on CNN in the first place after he ripped Stelter and dropped these truth bombs. Uh, here's the clip. Well, then why'd you bother coming on CNN a few times this week? <laughs> you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a book salesman. Cheers to Michael Wolff for that sort of honesty, because I would like to see more of it. It's good TV. My favorite item of the week was, I believe it was yesterday's Politico West Wing playbook, which was about the, oh, let me put it in like uh, professional terms, the <laughs> the symbiotic relationship between Jennifer Rubin's articles and Twitter feed and the Biden White House. And it's one of the many strange alliances that, that have emerged in the Biden era where our politics is all jumbled. I, I wrote a piece for Politico magazine on the Kochs, uh, the Biden administration now embracing the Kochs because they're cheering the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So so Politico, ex a West Wing playbook, examines this and they ask people in the White House, like, what do they think of Jen Rubin? They ask people to post. How do you feel about Jen Rubin being embraced by the White House? And there are a couple like a couple of journalistic things out of this. So Jen Rubin's response to being asked for comment was 
uh, to cry sexism. How utterly predictable that Politico would run the zillionth hit piece on a prominent woman, especially one candid in her critiques of Politico's hysterical, clickbait style of coverage. Okay, Jen. I, I, I don't disagree with her on that last part, but yeah. I mean, okay, Jen. But the other was that Jen, in her response to Politico's request for comment, she wrote this and a lot of other things in an email and put off the record in the subject line. Nice. Uh, now, she's supposedly a journalist, right, and knows that off the record is an agreement between two parties. So the source can say, I would like this to be off the record, and the reporter must then agree, yes, this will be off the record. Uh, sending an email, calling someone sexist, and simply saying beforehand, this is off the record. And honestly, people do this all the time. And expecting to reporters by by to abide by it is BS. And Jen, you know better, but but you play dirty girl. My favorite item of the week is an Atlantic feature on Hunter Biden's forthcoming yeah. art show and sale by Casey Michelle. I hope I'm not pronouncing mispronouncing that last name, but I really loved the following quotes from the article. <laughs> At some point in the coming weeks, hundreds of thousands of dollars will be funneled to the son of the sitting American president, and none of us will know anything about who sent the money or where it originally came from, or why anyone chose to send it in the first place. Now, this raises the question of who would be buying Hunter Biden's art for prices reportedly as high as half a million dollars. So, What are you, are you kidding? In the piece. Hunter, half yeah, it might not dollars? be for the art, Chris. Half? But that's why we're thinking it might not be for the artistic talent on display, which is what the next thing gets to. Hunter's artwork isn't bad, per se. <laughs> base level skill is evident in the paintings. Sebastian Smee, the Pulitzer Prize winning art critic for the Washington Post, told CNN that Biden was comparable to a, quote, cafe painter, by which I mean you see a certain kind of art in coffee shops and some of it is OK and a lot of it is bad and sometimes it's surprisingly good. But you wouldn't, unless you were related to the artist, spend more than one thousand dollars on it. Certainly not. I, I mean, I'd spend a thousand dollars on a Bob Ross original, but other than that i think i i i think i think no that is scandalous good for the atlantic 